Um, tonight, we are not having our regular shear in Shar HaBitochon. We're taking a break for a pre-Yud Shvat um, class and review of the Basi Ligani Mimer, which we do every year before Yud Shvat. Um, and we'll do that tonight as well. So, little introduction. Today, today was Rosh Chodesh, today was Rosh Chodesh Shvat. So tonight is the second day of Shvat, and a week from tomorrow night is Yud Shvat, the 10th day of Shvat. The 10th day of Shvat is the yard site of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, um, who was the sixth Rebbe of Chabad. He passed away in 1950 in New York, in Crown Heights, um, in 770, as we'll discuss shortly. And he, was, he lived for 70 years. Again, as I said, he was the sixth Rebbe. And he was obviously a Rebbe and a tremendous Sadiq, a leader of Klal Yisrael in his time. Um, perhaps most well-known for his role in really um, assuming the leadership of Klal Yisrael in communist Russia in the very terrible times under Stalin when uh, there was this concentrated effort on stamping out religion and Yiddishkeit and Torah and mitzvahs. And whereas some of the other great people of the time felt that there was no future for Yiddishkeit in Russia and they left. But the Friedrich Rebbe said, how could he leave if there's millions of Jews in Russia? And he stayed, and not only he stayed, he, he began an underground network of yeshivas and chadorim and mikvoyis, and he had his chassidim uh, go um, in secret to, from city to city throughout Russia to keep the flame of Yiddishkeit going, and through tremendous, tremendous self-sacrifice and serious nefesh, uh, many, many of the chassidim were arrested, were imprisoned, were sent off for work, works of, uh, for years of uh, slave labor, many of them killed, Many um, Chabad people today don't have a yard site for their great-grandfather or grandfather who was just taken away one day by the Russians. And this was all led by the Friedrich Rebbe until he himself was arrested in 1927 and was sentenced to death by the Stalinist government. And Why was he called the Friedrich? Friedrich means previous. Friedrich is, is Yiddish for previous. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, and he was the previous Rebbe, the second to the last Rebbe of Lubavitch. Um, ultimately, he was arrested, and he was imprisoned, and he was sentenced to death, and miraculously, death, de- that death sentence was commuted for a uh, 10-year sentence for hard labor, and then a three-year sentence of exile, and ultimately, ultimately, he was released from prison on the 12th of Tammuz, which was his birthday, and which is celebrated t- till today as the Chag HaGul, of the day of his release, but ultimately, he had to leave Russia at the time. So he left Russia in, uh, in 1928, and then he moved to Poland, Riga, Latvia, Poland, and uh, that's where he led Chabad and Chassidus at the, in Poland until 1940. In 1940, he uh, made it to America in the middle of the Holocaust. He made it out of Poland and he made it to America, and that's when um, the Chabad headquarters became in 770 Eastern Parkway, and that's where he was for the last 10 years of his life from 1940 until 1950. So that his leadership as Rebbe really was from 1920 till 1950. It was the, the period of time in Russia, under Stalinist Russia, the period of time in Poland, and then finally the last 10 years that he was in America um, and began the Chabad movement in America, which uh, since then has been headquartered in America. So the Chabad movement as we know it today was because of his vision? Well, as we know it today, as far as the expansion and throughout the world, he began that, right? When he came to America, he started sending out shluchim, um, in America a little bit and outside of America a little bit 
and then his son-in-law and successor. The Rebbe is the one who really took that and made that, you know, um, you know, kept on building on that and growing it exponentially after that. So, as I was saying, the last 10 years he was in America, and at this time he was quite not well. He came to America on a wheelchair. After all, he was after all he went through, and again, a lot of a lot of torture that he went through in prison in communist Russia, and he uh, literally came on a wheelchair. And in fact, uh, when he came to America, he was greeted by many of the uh, great Jewish leaders of, the, of America, and they told him, "Finally, you'll be able to rest up. You'll be able to rest up and take it easy. This is a free land. This is a good place." And he, on the uh, coming off the ship, made a very famous statement. He said, "I didn't come here to rest." I came here to prove as America is nicht anders, that America is no different, and that we can replace in America the Yiddish guide that's being lost in Poland and in Europe as we speak. Again, this is during the Holocaust. During the Holocaust that he makes it miraculously to America, and he has a mission. And he's coming to an America of tremendous assimilation, an America where there's very, very few yeshivas or free Yiddish guide, and he comes with a vision to change that. And he embarks on that mission immediately. Right? The first day that he was in America in 1940 is when he, um, is when he establishes his yeshiva in America. In fact, I heard personally from Rabbi Shusterman, who was a Rav here in Chicago for many, many years. And I had the merit of meeting him when I came. And he met with the Friedrich Rebbe on the day he came to America. On that day. And the Friedrich Rebbe, he was a, he was a student. He was a bacher in Torah Vadas. And the Friedrich Rebbe, he said, maybe, he said in Yiddish, has to come and learn in my yeshiva. Perhaps he'll come learn in me in my yeshiva. And Rabbi Shusterman said, yes. And he said that his father was very upset with him. Because here, this, he's in an established yeshiva, and he's in a big yeshiva with hundreds of, whatever, hundreds of whatever, students and yeshivas. And now this Hasidic Rebbe is coming from Poland, has nothing. And he's establishing a yeshiva, doesn't even have a room for it. And he's, he's you know, come to my yeshiva. But Rabbi Shusterman did go to the yeshiva, and he was one of ten with which he began, right when he came on 1940. But he was very uh, ill, and a year later, uh, he was joined by his son-in-law, the Rebbe, who also comes out miraculously from Germany during the Holocaust. The Rebbe and his wife, the Rebbe Sanchai Mushka, were in Germany, in Berlin, under Nazis, and they were running for the Nazis from place to place. There's, I mean, it's all written up, their, their whole journey, how they were escaping. And a year later, they come in 1951, and they, the Rebbe joins his father-in-law in America. And his father-in-law immediately uh, makes him the head of a number of the institutions that he was running in America. And he became his father-in-law's right-hand man. And one of the things that he was very much involved with, especially, was printing books of Torah, books of Hasidus, and books of, uh, all books of Torah. Um, for dissemination in America, many of them um, trans- translating books in English and in other languages. Um, and this was all headed by the Rebbe during the lifetime. When I say the Rebbe, I'm talking about our Rebbe during the lifetime of his father-in-law, the sixth Rebbe. Well, fast forward 10 years. So that was, this is all, um, as I said, 1940 or 1941, even though I, I misspoke. I said 1950 when I meant 41, right? We're talking about 1940 is when the, when the previous Rebbe comes to America. 1941, he's joined by his son-in-law, and those following nine years is years of a lot of work, ground, you know, ground, uh, groundwork, ground, you know, ground breaking, ground laying work uh, in in America. Fast forward to, to 1950. At this point, already 1950, the Friedrich Rebbe is quite ill, although not not in any way as far as imminent life danger, as far as anyone knows, but he's very much paralyzed, 
and can't speak. Primarily, his, uh, his power of speech is very, very affected by the paralysis going on. And therefore, he's not able to teach Hasidus and not able to give Mamorim discourses as he was wont to. And instead, what he would do is he would prepare or really give instructions to the son of the, the Rebbe, to prepare Hasidic discourses that the, that the previous Rebbe had said years earlier, prepare them for print, and to give them out for special dates in the calendar that were coming up, and have the Hasidim learn the teachings as they were prepared and disseminated in honor of these special dates. So it was the winter of 1950, Tov Shin the winter of 1950, and one day, the previous Rebbe calls in his son-in-law and says, I want you to prepare a mimer that I said years ago, um, probably, sub, uh, I'm going to say 17 years earlier, or, uh, 16 or 17 years earlier. It's a lengthy discourse. It is made up of 20 prokin, 20 chapters, but split up into five mimerim. So it's each, it's five uh, mimers, a discourse, five mimerim, each one is made up of five chapters, and together it's a 20-chapter lengthy discourse. And he said, I want you to prepare it, and I want you to give it out for four special dates coming up. And he said, he's very, he gave him concise um, instructions. He says, the first section of the Mimer should be given out for the 10th of Shvat. What was the 10th of Shvat? The 10th of Shvat is my grandmother's yurtzeit. Right? The previous Rebbe was saying, my grandmother was the Rebbe in Rivka. She was the wife of the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Rebbe of Chabad. Her yard site is the 10th of Shvat, so section one should be given off for the 10th of Shvat, which happens to be Shabbos. Okay. Section two should be given out for the 13th of Shvat. Yud Gimel Shvat. What's the 13th of Shvat? Okay, but that's not what he said then. Um, he said, my mother is your site. The Rebbe Sternasar, who was the Rebbe the wife of the Rebbe Rashab, and the mother to the Friedrich Rebbe. So section one is for his grandmother's yard site. Section two is for his mother's yard site. Okay. Section three should be given out for Purim. Okay, that we all know what it is. Section four should be given out for the second day of Nissan, Bez Nissan, which is his father's yard site, Rebbe Rashab. And that would be the Mimer. So again, it's a four-section Mimer. Each section made up of five chapters. So it's 20 chapters long, split up into four sections. And they were meant to be, the, the instruction was to give them out part one for the 10th of Shvat, part two for the 13th of Shvat, part three for Purim, and part four for Beis Nissan, the second day of Nissan. Again, commemorating a yard site of a grandmother, a yard site of a mother, the yant of a Purim, and a yard site of his father. That was the instruction. And he finished off by saying, and to make sure that the first part should be out before Yud Shvat, before Shabbos, so that Shabbos, it should already be on the tables in the shul so people can start learning it already on Shabbos. That was the instruction. Do you find it interesting that three were on yard sites and one was on Purim? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but I find it interesting, and yet the explanation I don't have. Okay. But that's the, that's, that's the story. In, in Yiddish they say, Akasha <laughs> afamaisa. That, that's the story, that's how we instruct it, and that's what it was. Right? On the simple level, that was with the upcoming dates, the special okay. dates on the calendar. You know, you couldn't very well change around the dates, right? Be that as it may, this is all the instructions, and the Rebbe got the instructions, and the Rebbe was a tremendous chassid of his father-in-law, and every word that he said was, and if he, if he was instructed, that's what he was going to do, and I heard from someone who was there at the time, he said that that Friday, the Rebbe was, went to the printer, and he brought back the first copy of the Mimer. The first, the Mimer is based on a verse, like most Mimerim are, it's a verse of Shir Hashirim, 
which is Basi Legani Achosi Kala. I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. Uh, throughout Shir Hashirim, Hashem calls the Jewish people his sister, his bride, and other terms of endearment. And that's the Pasuk, that's the verse on which the Mimer is based. On Friday afternoon, the Rebbe comes back from the printer with the first copy of the Mimer, printed as he was instructed to by his father-in-law, the Rebbe. He walks into the office, and the Rebbe describes this later. He walks into his father-in-law's office, and his father-in-law, the, the Rebbe, is sitting already dressed in his Shabbos garb, with his shrimal, with his Shabbos clothing, and he's davening Mincha. He's before Shimon Esrei, in the, in the lead-up to Mincha, and the Rebbe put down the mimer by his father-in-law, and his father-in-law looked up from the sitter, nodded his approval and his thanks, and the Rebbe backed out of the room. Unbeknownst to him, this was the last time he was going to see his father-in-law. Because the next morning, on Shabbos morning, the Friedrich Rebbe suddenly passed away. Um, in his room, he had, whether well, it was a heart attack or whatever it is, but he was found um, at eight, I think 8 o'clock in the morning or so, and he passed away that Shabbos morning in his room in 770. On the 10th of Shvat, his grandmother's yard sale. So, and obviously, if he ever passed away, and you can imagine what happened that Shabbos, and after Shabbos, the next morning was a huge Levaya, Sunday morning, Yudala Shvat, the 11th of Shvat, in New York, 1950. Now, but the Rebbe saw in this mimer like a spiritual will of the Friedrich Rebbe. He said, if this is the mimer that he gave out specifically to be learned and to be distributed on the day that turned out to be the day of his passing, and nothing in this world is random at all, especially something with a tzaddik. The Rebbe always saw this mimer, the Basi Lagani mimer, as like a will and testament, a, a mission statement of the previous year. And therefore the Rebbe um, said it, it became like a custom that before Yud Shvat, we review that mimer, that Hasidic discourse that the Friedrich Rebbe gave to be printed and learned for the day that turned out to be the day of his Yartzeh. Now, having said that, it gets much more interesting. And that is, and this is basic about history, that for one entire year then, from the 10th of Shvat, 1950 till 1951, the, um, the Hasidim were asking the Rebbe, the son-in-law, to accept the post as successor, to be the new Rebbe of Chabad. And the Rebbe, for reasons that we definitely don't know, refused it. Kept on refusing, and kept on saying no, and there were entreaties coming from all over the world, and the Rebbe was very vehement. Very, there's an entire book written about the, uh, the occurrences of that year. But for a year, the Rebbe pushed and pushed it off, pushed it off, did not accept it. Until one year later on Yud Shvat. The first yard site of the Friedrich Rebbe, now it's Yud Shvat, the 10th of Shvat, 1951. And there's going to be a big farbring in the 770. Or actually, I take that back, I think it was in a hall, you know what? But a big farbring there in Crown Heights um, to commemorate the first yard site of the Friedrich Rebbe. Now, for a year, the Rebbe did not accept the official mantle of leadership of Rebbe, but he, he spoke, he, had, he led a lot of Fabrinians, he spoke a lot, he met with a lot of people, gave advice, but wouldn't accept the title of New Chabad Rebbe. In what practical way did that express itself? He didn't say a new Hasidic discourse. Right? One of the things, one of the basics of a Chabad Rebbe is to say Hasidus, to say a mimer, a mimer Hasidus. Now, well, that's the tradition of that. New stuff? New stuff, yeah. New mamorim of Hasidus. So the Rebbe discussed the Ritaira and said a lot of things. But to, to say a mimer, a Hasidic discourse, which comes along, it's a special tune, and there's a tune sung earlier before, usually, the Rebbe didn't. Until that one year Yurtzeit Fabringen. By that Fabringen, quite suddenly, in the middle of Fabringen, the Rebbe started a mimer. And a mimer based on which Pasuk? Basilagani Achosikala. 
In other words, the Hasidic discourse based on the Hasidic discourse that his predecessor, that his father-in-law, had left for the day of his passing. Right? So the Rebbe starts and says that minor Baslagani, and with that is the official acceptance, so to speak, of to be the new Rebbe of Chabad. And then, from that time on, the Rebbe started a fascinating minhag that, that he himself did. And that is, every year on Yud Shvat, every year on the yard site of his father-in-law, he would say a Hasidic discourse, always starting with this Pasuk, with this verse, and the, the discourse would be focusing in on one of the chapters of the initial discourse of his father-in-law. Mm-hmm. So, in 1951, the Basi Ligani focused in on chapter one of the initial discourse. How many chapters were there in the initial discourse? Five. No, 20. well, five was the first part, 20. 20. So, 1951, the Rebbe's Basi Ligani was focused on Ois Aleph, on chapter one. In 1952, on chapter 2, that takes us all the way till 1970. 20 years, 20 Yud Shvats, 20 Basi Ligani discourses, each one focusing and illuminating one of the initial chapters of Basi Ligani. And be clear? So 1951 through 1970, 20 Hasidic discourses, 20 Basi Liganis, all, each one, is Aleph, is Beis, is Gimel, is Dalet, Okay, 1970, we're done. Now, what's going to be in 1971? Nobody knew. 1971 came the Fabreng in Yudshvat, and the Rebbe begins Basi Ligani and starts over, focusing again on the first chapter. And continues 1972, 73, every year, a new mimer, a new focus on a new chapter. And he went through the entire thing again, 1971 until 1990. Right? So we have twice that the Rebbe is going through all the Basilaganis each year, a new Hasidic discourse, a new Hasidic discourse with a new focus on another chapter of the initial mind. Um, and then, already, the truth is, already 1989, I don't know if there was a new discourse, I'm not sure about 89, 90, but then the Hasidim continued the Minah, right? In 1992, the Rebbe himself suffered a stroke. 1994, the Rebbe passes on. But the minhag that the Rebbe began was continued, which means that every year we, fo- we, we review the Basilagani, this mimer, this initial discourse that the previous Rebbe gave for his, on the day of his passing. And every year we put emphasis and focus on the next chapter, the chapter of that year, together with the mimerim that the Rebbe said on that chapter. So if we do the math, right, where are we holding? Let's try to figure this out. 1951 till 1970 is the first round. 1971 till 1990 is the second round. 1991 till 2010 is the third round. 2011 until 2030 is going to be the completion of the fourth round. Where are we today? 2023. So which, so we're in the middle of the fourth round. At which initial chapter are we in the fourth round? 13. 13. And that's exactly so. So this year, if we follow that custom that the Rebbe began of going through the Basi Ligani Maimarin year by year, this year we review the Basi Ligani with special emphasis and focus on chapter 13 of the initial Basi Ligani of the previous Rebbe. I know this is a little bit mathematical here. But just to, t- to take the mathematics one step further, if we want to learn this year chapter 13, and we want to learn it with the Rebbe's discourses on chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Which Maimarim of the Rebbe are we looking for? Which years? 
Am I being clear? No, it's because the Rebbe did chapter 13 twice. 63. Right? 51. Yeah, 51 is 1. Yeah. So 52, 52. So 13 is 1963 Uh and 1983. Uh Right? 1963 is when the Rebbe was working through it the first time around. 1983 is where the Rebbe was working through it the second time around. Mm -hmm. So in 2023... If we're, if we're to follow this custom that the Rebbe sets into motion, and we're going to learn the initial Basilagani from the previous Rebbe with emphasis on chapter 13, and then we're going, to, we're, we're going to learn what did the Rebbe have to say about that chapter 13, so we're going to be learning, we'll focus on the Rebbe's Basilagani mimer that he said in 1963, and then the one he said in 1983, which were different mimers. Though they were both focused on Basilagani and both on chapter 13, but each one took it to a different level, to a different place. Well, what happened in 03? I'm sorry? What happened in 03? There was no new mimer. Uh-huh. That's they what did I, the same thing? The 63 yeah, and 83? Right. 63 and 03 is just 13 with 63 and 83. Right? We're not going to make up our new mimer. We have the, what the Rebbe taught about this mimer, about this year's os. So this year in Chabad, if you go into any Chabad yeshiva or any place where people are into it and studying the right things, this is the booklet that was printed for this year, Yudshva. What does it say here? Bas, basi Lagani, the minor Bas Lagani, Tafshin Chaf Gimel and Tafshin Mem Gimel, which is 23 and, I'm sorry, what am I saying? Which is 63 and 83, right? So in this booklet, you'll have first printed the chapter 13 itself, the Ois Yud Gimel, chapter 13 of the initial one, then the Rebbe's Mimer, which is focused on that chapter from 1963 uh, and the one from 83. That's the, that's the very fascinating Basi Ligani Chabad tradition that the Rebbe himself began, all based on that very unusual occurrence of a Rebbe preparing a mimer and saying, I want this printed for that day, and then passing away in that day. And the Rebbe again tells us, if a tzaddik is doing that, he's telling us something, that this is the mimer that I want you to take from, from this step on. And as we'll see, we go through the mimer a little bit, that there was very tremendous... Um, it's just a, it's a magnificent mimer on so many levels. And a lot of um, magnificent, uh, at least hints and signs, how this is connected specifically with our generation, as we'll see. As we'll see shortly. And the Rebbe took it as really as a mission statement for our generation until the coming of Mashiach. What's the definition of mimer? Sorry. Great, uh, great, great question. Mimer means a saying, literally. That's the, the Hebrew word. But by Hasidim, it's a Hasidic discourse, where the Rebbe teaches ideas and concepts of Hasidus, or reveals concepts of Hasidus. <clears throat> okay, let's take a look at the initial buses. Really what I'm going to do now, and we're doing this this week and next week, right? So today we're going to look primarily at the previous Rebbe's Basi Lagani, at the build of the previous Rebbe's Mimer, and I doubt we're going to get too much into the Rebbe's explanation of this um, year's chapter that we'll probably do next week. So it's going to be a two-part thing tonight. Tonight we'll look at least primarily at the build of the pre- of the previous Rebbe's Basilagani Mimer again that he gives for the day of his passing. As I said, the Mimer is starts with the words Hashem says, Basilagani, I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. Hashem says, I've come to my garden. What's the garden? The garden is this world. And here the Mimer brings a very interesting medrash, where the medrash says. Hashem didn't say, I came to a garden or to the garden. He says, I came to my garden, Basilagani, indicating that Hashem feels very at home in this world. That Hashem was here initially. 
And he goes on to explain the following. When Hashem is talking, Hashem says, I came to the garden. What is he referring to? Which time in history did Hashem say, I came to the world? And the measure says it's talking about when the Mishkan was created, when the Mishkan was built. We know the Kali soul comes out of um, Mitzrayim, and then they have the giving of Torah, and then they're told the mitzvah of building a Mishkan. And there's a uh, fundraiser, and they put together the Mishkan, and the Mishkan is finally built and put together for Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Right? It's Rosh Chodesh Nisan, almost a year after the giving of Torah, when the Mishkan is finally built. And there we have, when the Mishkan is built, we have the presence of Hashem, the Shekhinah, coming down and resting amongst Klal Yisrael. As the Pasuk says, V'yasu li mikdash, make for me a sanctuary, v'shachanti b'soycham, and I will rest amongst you or amongst them, as we'll see. So the Mishkan is when Hashem comes to the world, so to speak. And it's at that time that Hashem says, Basi ligani, I've come back, I'm, I'm, I'm back home, I'm back to my garden. Says the Medrash, so what does that mean? that Hashem is coming back to where he initially was. And here's what the Medrash goes on to say, When Hashem created the world, the essence of the divine resting place was in this world. The place where Hashem was revealed and rested was this world when the world was created. But then, the Medrash says, Hashem was pushed away from this world, so to speak. And the Medrash goes on to say that there were seven cardinal sins that pushed Hashem away from this world step by step by step. Seven steps away from this world. The Medrash talks about seven heavens. Shiva Rakim. That there's this earth and there's seven heavens. Um, I don't know if that's meant on a physical level that one can find seven heavens physically. I don't know. But the Medrash talks about Shiva Rakim, seven levels, and says that the first sin pushed Hashem to the first heaven away from earth to the first heaven, the second sin to the second heaven, the third to the third, and finally the seventh sin pushes Hashem seven levels away from the world, so to speak, seven to the seventh heaven. What were those seven cardinal sins? Says the Medrash. We have the, what's the first sin? The first one is the famous one. That's the sin of the Esadas, right? Eating the eating the Esadas, of other Mechav eating from the Esadas. Um, sin number two is Cain killing Hevel. Right? That was another big one. Sin number three is the generation of Enosh, the grandson of Adam. Enosh is the first one who starts idolatry in the world. Sin number four, the generation of the flood, which is a ter- terribly sinful um, generation. Sin number five is the man, the generation of the tower, the ones who built the tower to fight Hashem, also in the Chumash. Where am I holding? Which number? Uh, six. Number six is the sin of Sodom and Amorah. The people of Sodom and Amorah who were tremendously evil and wicked to the extent that they had to be totally destroyed. And finally, the sins of the Egyptians, the sins of the Mitzrayim. But when we say here Egyptians, it's important to note we're not talking about the Egyptians that enslaved the Jewish people because that's already later. We're talking about the earlier ones, the ones in the time of Avramovin, the one, that one who took Sarah Nimenu, the early Egyptians. Those are the seven cardinal sins at the beginning of creation, says the Medrash, that pushed Hashem away from level to level, step by step, till the seventh heaven. Then, says the Medrash, came seven great tzaddikim, and each one with their avodah was able to bring the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, back down. From the seventh to the sixth, the sixth to the fifth, the fifth to the fourth, the fourth to the third, the third to the second, second to the first, and then back into this world. Who were the seven Sadikim who brought Hashem down step by step? It's easy to remember because it's father and son all the way. Avraham, 
Yitzchak, Yaakov. Okay, now where do we go? Levi. Levi's son, Kehus. Kehus's son is Amram, whose son is Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is the seventh generation from Avraham Avinu. And just like there were seven cardinal sins that had that terrible effect of removal of divinity, of divine revelation in this world, step by step by step, so too. They're followed by the seven great tzaddikim who bring the Shekhinah, bring the divine presence down back into this world, step by step on step from the top to the bottom until the seventh comes Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the seventh, and he brings the Shekhinah into this world when he builds that mishkan. mikdash, make for me a sanctuary, and I will rest amongst you. That's Moshe Rabbeinu who's able to accomplish through his avodah, bringing the Shekhinah. So it doesn't start with him. He's bringing it from level six down, from, I'm sorry, from level one down to this world. It's a continuous effort, but he's the one who actually brings it into this world. And when the Friedrich Rebbe says this, he writes that it's the seventh one who brings it all the way down. And he quotes the words from the Medrash, the Chal Hashvin Chavivin. The seventh is always beloved. Where do we find in Torah that the seventh is beloved? Shabbos, right? Shabbos is the time of, of holiness in the world. It's first, sec, six, uh, second, third, fourth. The seventh is where the Chavivus, where the, where the belovedness is. So just like Shabbos is to the week, the seventh Sadeh brings the Shekhinah all the way down into the world. And that was the Avodah of Moshe Rabbeinu. And this is one of the tremendous uh, hints in this mimer, because the Friedrich Rebbe was the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, mm-hmm. starting from the Balatanya, and he's passing on this, this mimer, which is the mimer that signifies the day of his passing and bringing it into the next generation. And the Rebbe saw in this mimer the charge, that being the seventh generation, the charge of bringing the Shekhinah all the way down into this world, which is why the Rebbe always made it center of all of his avodah, that we have to bring Mashiach, we have to bring the Shekhinah into this world. He read it all in that mimer, of, that, of the mimer that became the mimer that was given to him as he was going to lead on the next step, the seventh generation from the Balatani, from the Alter Rebbe, of a mission of bringing the Shekhinah all the way down into this world. V'shachanti b'socham, to bring it all the way down, just as Moshe Rabbeinu in his time, and in our time when we have, we're charged with the ultimate mission of finishing this long golos and bringing Mashiach, which is how the Rebbe always saw this mimer, again, as a mission statement of our generation, the Dor Hashvi, the seventh generation, to actually bring the Shekhinah into this world. So, that is the medrash that the mimer is based on. But he takes that and he starts expanding it. And he talks a lot about, okay, if the main idea is to bring the Shekhinah into this world, and if that's our job, how do we do it? So how was it done the first time? In the Beis HaMikdash. So the Beis HaMikdash, he looks at the Beis HaMikdash, and there's a lot of discussion about Karbonos. The primary avoda in the Beis HaMikdash was bringing Karbonos, bringing sacrifices. But sacrifices on the physical end is bringing that, the sheep or whatever it is, and bringing it as a carbon to Hashem. On a avoda level, on an internal level that's dealing with our own animalistic parts of ourselves and bringing them closer to Hashem. The word karbon comes from the word kiruv, or lihiskarev, to come closer. And all of us have animalistic parts to ourselves, which are the selfish part of ourselves and the unholy part of ourselves, and the part of ourselves that are, you know, whether you you give it the name however you want, narcissistic or self-centered and so on and so forth, and that's the animal. And the idea is to be mikariv, to be makariv and to sacrifice and bring close our own animal and bring it closer to Hashem. 
Um, he goes on to discuss a very important part of the Mimer, a famous part of the Mimer, is that the Mishkan, the walls of the Mishkan were made out of Atzei Shitim. The word in Hebrew is Atzei Shitim, and that's tra- translated as, sometimes as uh, cedar wood, but I think that's not really correct, more uh, acacia wood or something like that. But the, the important word here is the Hebrew word, that this, the, the uh, wood with which the Mishkan was created was wood of Shitim. And in the Maimir, it talks about that the shita comes from the word shtus. And what does shtus mean? Shtus means something that's not logical. Um, typically, we talk about shtus as silly. But really, it means something that's not based on logic. And there's a lot of discussion in the Maimir about the fact that we have a lot of silliness in our own life. Things that we do that don't really make sense for us to do. Um, he, he quotes the Gemara that says, Ein adam chote, A person does not sin. Only when a spirit of silliness overtakes the person. Meaning that the, the logical thing for a person to do is to do the right thing. Do the right thing and be connected to Hashem. If we would only recognize the meaning of what we do, the power of what we do, um, and how, how, much, how much positive energy we generate by doing the right things, and negative energy by negative, and how much this brings us closer to Hashem, and how much this distances. You know, if we'd be thinking straight, we would never sin. And that's the Gemara says. Ein adam chayte, a person only sins because of ruach shtus. There's that silliness within us that covers over our logic, our divine logic, our, our moral compass. And that makes us do things that we regret and, and don't make sense in the bigger picture. So that's shtus. That's the negative shtus that we have within ourselves. And what we have to do is take those shtus and make that part of our mishkan. Right? We take those atzei shitim, those woods of shtus, if you will, and they also become part of creating, we change that shtus and make it holy shtus. And there's a whole thing in this mimer, a whole uh, talk about shtus of kedusha. Just like there's negative shtus, there's positive shtus. What does positive shtus mean? Positive shtus, what he calls it holy shtus, shtus of kedusha, that's when we're good to a, silly, to, a, to a silly level, beyond logic. More than logic would dictate that we should be good. When we act good and we act kind, more than our logic would dictate that we should. We go beyond the measure of logic and reason. Can you give us an example? Example, okay. So I'll give you, the, instead of my own examples, I'll give you the example of the Mimer. The Mimer, the example of the Mimer, brings the story from the Gemara of one of the great sages. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Berebi Eloi. He was one of the sages of the Talmud, one of the Amiroim. It says Rabbi Yehuda Bariloi was a tremendous sadik, and there was one mitzvah that he loved doing with tremendous, tremendous energy, and that was to bring simcha to a chasana and kala. Whenever there was a chasana, he would come and he would dance, and he would do all types of stunts. And it says the Gemara that he would take um, a uh, take a hadas, which is a, uh, a hadas branch, what is it, uh, the, myr- the myrtle branch, and he would juggle it in front of the chasana and kala. And this is a sage. This is one of the leaders of the generation, and he's juggling, and he's doing acrobatics. And the other sages said, you're embarrassing us. You know, that's for the teenagers. Let them do the shtick. Right? Who's supposed to do the shtick by the chasana? Right? The teenagers, you know, the chasana's friend, the kala's friends. And here you have the sage, the teacher, the amira, and he's acting silly. So the other sages, great Talmud, great Sadiqim said, it's unbecoming. It's not respectful. This is not the way you should behave. And he disagreed with them. 
He says, this is my way. I, I want to do it. This is my mitzvah. I want to do this mitzvah and I don't mind what I'm going to look like or what people are going to say about me. This is my mitzvah. When he passed away, the Gemara says that at his funeral, a fiery myrtle branch came down from heaven and the, everyone saw this pillar of fire separating him from everyone else and escorting him as they buried him. And the other Chachamim said, he must have been right. He, he, he understood something we didn't. And what was, what was the debate about? From a logical perspective, they were right. You know, you don't, if the great sage doesn't have to act like a child to make the chasen akala happy. There are people who can do that. For that, you hire a clown, right? But his devotion to this mitzvah went way beyond what logic would dictate, what made sense. He threw himself into it and became silly even in the performance of this mitzvah. It's interesting, there's a similar story, not brought in this Maimah, but another famous story which, with David HaMelech. Very similar, actually, because David HaMelech, when they were bringing the Sefer Torah to the Mishkan, David was dancing and dancing and, and doing all types of, uh, of um, acrobatic dances, and his wife, Michal Bas Shol, was very upset. And she said, you embarrassed the kingdom. She says, that's not a way a king acts. You know, you're a king. You have to remember yourself. And, and she said that, that, um, that as he was dancing, he was wearing a robe and the robe lifted up and people saw his, a bare leg. And she said, and everyone sees the king acting like this. So his wife was very upset. And David HaMelech tells her, he says, out of my simcha for Hashem, I should think about my own kavod, about my own respect, and my own dignity, my own honor. And, and he was right. And the Torah, this is written up in the Navi, the story. In fact, it says, this is his wife, Michal was punished for this, she didn't have children afterward. The Pasuk says, and again, it's really the same debate. It's a question of, you know, there's logic, how much one should be doing and taking themselves into consideration and their respect and their dignity and so on and so forth. And then there's when a person goes beyond all reason because their love for Hashem, their love for the mitzvah. And that, in the Maimur, says, is shtus de kedusha. So he says, all of us have shtus in ourselves. None of us are always perfectly logical. It's up to us which way we're going to take that. Is our shtus going to be in doing things that we regret and everyone else regrets because our, our temptation or whatever overtakes us and then we act illogically? Or we transform our negative shtus into positive shtus and connect ourselves to the highest level of godliness. And that's what it means that the walls of the Besamikdash are made out of shtus wood. And as the walls creating a place for Hashem to live is taking negative shtus and turning it into positive shtus. This feels huge to me. It is? <laughs> no? Like, yeah. I, I'm like, wow. Because you could, you could be dancing and be silly for good or just for silly. Right. So it, it, it shows us that any of our behavior could be interpreted from where, what's our, what's our, who's, what's our intention. Where are we taking it? And that's exactly what he's saying in the Mimer. That to make a Mishkan for Hashem is to be using everything, including the things that people think, oh, that's negative, turning them into a vehicle for Hashem and a vehicle for creating a base on Mikdash, a home for Hashem and ourselves and in this world. And uh, there's something I have to say because I forgot. The whole idea of bringing Hashem into the world in the base HaMikdash is a, another key my, idea of this Mimer is that it's not just the one base HaMikdash, but it's bringing it into each and every one of our own home. And it's based on Chazal that say, on the verse, "V'asulim mikdash, make for me a sanctuary." V'shachanti besocham. It doesn't say besocho, make for me a sanctuary. I'll rest in it. 
make for me a sanctuary, I'll rest amongst them, because ultimately there's one mishkan, but the idea is that everyone makes their own home, their own place, a place where Hashem can rest and be revealed as well in their own lives. So all of these are lessons in, in what does it mean to make a mishkan for Hashem? And just one more on, on that line, he talks about the fact that the other word for the walls of the mishkan are krushin, or a keresh, right? What does the word keresh mean in Hebrew? A keresh is a uh, plank, literally. Plank? A plank, like the planks, the walls of the mishkan were planks of wood. But the word keresh, is, is the letters kuf reishin, if you move the letters around, you have sheker, which is falseness. And again, he says, we take those things in this world, the falseness of this world, we turn it around and we use it for kedusha. Bechal masechal Hashem shamayim, that all the worldly things and everything that we're involved with, that could be silly and it could be false and it could be unholy and it could be impure, that also can become, if used properly and attended properly, they become the walls to build the house for Hashem. Can you give us some more <coughs> like daily examples of this? Of this more daily examples. Okay, well, let's, let's let's try one. <laughs> yeah, no, the truth, no, and that's that's the real answer. Um, a beautiful home. What's a beautiful home for? Now, a beautiful home could just be an imp- uh, a um, uh, an expression of a person's. Uh, hedonistic desires, and they want to have the nicest house on the block, and they need to have the nicest everything. Mm-hmm. A beautiful home can also be a place to create a beautiful home for Shabbos, and create a beautiful home for a shir, a place where people come together and study Torah, and are inspired by the beauty of Yiddishkeit, and the beauty of a Jewish home, and the, holy, and the holiness of a home. So that same beautiful home can be a vehicle of just selfishness, or it can be a vehicle of creating something beautiful for Hashem, and bringing Hashem to other people and, and bringing people happiness and excitement and pride of their Yiddishkeit. And really everything can be that way. Everything that can be used in a way that can be very negative can be turned around and become walls for Hashem's home. I feel like anything that annoys you, it's our job to like reframe it to find the Kedusha in it. Like, like I've always said that making Pesach is a, is a woman's mitzvah and women get all the schosom for it. Who's cleaned the house and who's who's gotten rid of all the chumats? Okay, so the man checks it, but the woman's really—that's her job. And who learned Torah with the kids? Who's giving the, the mothers? And the kids are the one who's giving over the haggadah by the table. So the mother can sit there and say, "This house and this Torah is on me." A woman could be complaining, "Oh my God, I have to clean, I have to cook, I have to turn over. I, I don't have time to work with the kids." It could be a lot, but it's. It's all for the good. The cleaning up after your children, doing homework, cleaning up after whatever it is, making supper and not being appreciated for it. Like, we're nourishing. Is that what the shtus is? Is that it's, an, it's another expression of it. It's, an, it's, it's similar. It's definitely it's 100% a correct point, everything you just said. Okay. The shtus angle would be if I do the same thing in a shtus way or for a kedusha way. Now, that's the angle here that we're talking about is that something that can be done and be just negativity and for silliness, and that same thing can be turned around and be used to create something holy. And it really, when we say, and we mentioned earlier the what Chazal say, mm-hmm. that means that a person has the ability to turn everything they do into something holy. Or as the Pasuk says, 
to be able to see Hashem and know Hashem in everything that we do. Some of the things is more evident, some of the things are far out there, and some of the things seem like total shtus. And that total shtus can actually be extremely powerful in bringing Hashem into our life and the lives of our family and lives of people. Didn't the rabbit always say that you have to celebrate birthdays? For example. Okay, so like I know, sometimes in the Litvisha world, birthdays were silly. We don't, we don't give up Torah, we don't do this or that. But the Rebbe celebrated birthdays because... And he made something holy out of it. And he made something holy out of it. Great. Great example. Great example. And yes, the example is about. The example is really about. Okay. All of this really takes us through, I've been, really the first two sections, which means the first 20 chapters of Basi Lagani. Of the pre of the freedom of the Rebbe's mind, the first one, right? We didn't yet de- de- yet deal really with the Rebbe's explanations. The first Maimur Basilagani, the things that we've been discussing now can all be found within the first ten chapters, which is the first two sections, the one that was given for the tenth Shvat and then the thirteenth Shvat. Okay, as we move on, he moves on to another fascinating idea, and he talks about the fact that when we left Mitzrayim, we were called Tzivos Hashem. Tzivos Hashem means literally what's Tzivos? is the army, we're like an army. And that we are, we have a mission. We're like in an army, we're like soldiers with a mission. And what's our mission? The mission we've been discussing, making this world a home for Hashem. That's the mission for which our neshamas are in this world, to bring godliness into this world, to make our homes, and everything that we're involved with, a mishkan, a home for Hashem. He talks about the fact that the word tzivos, which is really the root of that word tzava, really has three meanings. Sava means to be an army, a soldier in an army. Sava, sava could also mean time. He brings a pasuk with the word um, that a person has a certain amount of time. Time is also called sava. Um, and he says, in our job of making this world a place for Hashem, each one of us is given a certain amount of time. And it's important to recognize that. It's not like we live for 70, 80, 90 years and whatever. We hope you, you know, use your time uh, properly. Rather, Hashem gives every person X amount of time with the amount of time they need to fulfill their mission. And it says it's important to know that. It's not like, okay, I'll get to it next year. Because, I mean, God willing, there will be a next year. But what about this year? I was given this year. I was given today with a mission. Every day has its mission. And finally, he says that the word Sava is also connected with the word Sivyon, which means something that's colorful. And the reason it's colorful is because each and every one of us together bring about Hashem's, uh, Hashem's coming into this world. And it's colorful because each and every one of us does it in our, in our own way. No two people are alike and no two people are, are serve Hashem the same way. And no two people are given the same talents and situations and circumstances. So together, as a Klal Yisrael, we're the most, we create the most colorful uh, tapestry, if you will, of bringing Hashem into this world in all of the different unique ways that each and every one of us can. And he talks about that that's why we're called Sivos Hashem, because all these three are important. We're an army, we have a mission, um, a mission which requires battles many times, as a mission as an army does, and we do it by understanding that we're given the necessary time, the time allotments to do our missions, and we understand that we're doing it as part of a group, part of a unit of Klal Yisrael, not every person just on their own, but together we create bringing Hashem into this world. But then he says, he talks about that the idea of an army, the fact that we're uh, an army fulfilling this mission, um, an army is something that the king of the army needs and uses in order to 
bring about victory. And he talks about that victory is a very extremely powerful um, soul power. We know that we have all, Hasidus tells us, where our soul is made up of ten basic soul powers. The one soul power that reaches deepest into our soul and calls forth the deepest and most powerful kochos is the soul power of Netzach. What does Netzach mean? To be victorious. When we are challenged and we have to overcome a challenge, we're able to find deeper powers and deeper soul expressions than anything else. Challenge makes us stronger than anything else. And we're able to find and, and um, reveal powers of our soul to overcome a challenge, especially when we really have to be victorious in something very important to us. And he says the same thing is with the fact that Hashem um, gives each and every one of us a mission and makes us his army. And the army to accomplish the challenge of Basilagani, bringing Hashem into this world. So Hashem gives us the deepest soul powers, the greatest gifts to enable us to overcome our battles and our challenges and our adversaries in bringing Hashem into this world, bringing Hashem into our life. And he gives a very beautiful mushal, a very beautiful metaphor of a king. And he says the king has treasures. You know, it's hard for us to imagine really kings, but what we read about, what we heard about the real kings of old, and the king has the treasures of the kingdom, the treasures of the palace, and these are the treasures that the king amassed, but more, more than the king that he has from his ancestors, the earlier kings, and these are the, the treasures of the kingdom. Whoever sees the treasures of the kingdom? They're buried underground, they're under lock and key. Nobody ever sees, maybe the greatest ministers or visiting kings are taken for a tour to see the treasures of the kingdom. Normally the treasures of the kingdom are hidden under lock and, uh, lock and key. Says the Mimer, says the, the Rebbe the Mimer, there's one time that the king will not only reveal his treasures, he'll splurge them. And that is, if they're needed to, be, to, if they're needed to help the army to be victorious in battle. Because there's nothing as important for the king as to accomplish the mission, accomplish the victories that the king needs. So if, there's, if the king's soldiers, if the army is in danger, the king will open the door to his treasure houses wide and give it out to the generals of the army to give it out to the soldiers of the army to give them whatever they need, but that victory should be, should be met, should be accomplished. All of that was a metaphor for Hashem and us and our job, our mission. We're, arm, we're, we're, we're soldiers in Hashem's army. We have that mission of making this world a holy place, a godly place. And that's through bringing godliness into each and every one of our own homes and our own life. In order to do that, sometimes we have to battle all different types of battles, external and internal. Because we have our own set of inside battles aside from our external battles. And for that we need extra koiches, extra energies from Hashem. And Hashem digs down deep into His own treasure chest. <coughs> the oitzeris, the highest levels of divine treasures and empowers each and every one of us in order to be able to overcome those struggles and those battles that we need to in order to fulfill our mission. And so he goes, and there, goes, there he goes off in a whole lengthy, a number of um, chapters in the Mimer. And that's really, this year's chapter is going to be on that, and that's what we're going to get into next, uh, year, uh, next week that is uh, more, um, more specifically. But he talks about what are Hashem's greatest treasures. 
Because if we're saying that Hashem is empowering us by giving us, by, by splurging His greatest treasures, what are those greatest treasures? So he goes into a very deep and Kabbalistic concept based on the words of the Zohar, where the Zohar says, and this is the quote, Or Ein Sof, which means the unlimited light of Hashem, is Lamaila Maila Ad Ein Ketz, is higher and higher without any limit, Ulimata Mata Ad Ein Tachlis, and also extends lower and lower, also without any type of limitation whatsoever. The infinite light of Hashem extends upwards, higher and higher and higher, and extends lower and lower and lower, because it's infinite. To understand that statement of the Zohar, he starts going in step by step. What does it mean that the Orient Sof goes lower and lower? Which levels are we talking about? We're talking about the infinite light of Hashem. We're saying it goes lower and lower and lower. And then it goes higher and higher and higher. Where is lower? Where is higher? What's he referring to? That's what he gets involved in. And it's a very Kabbalistic section. The section this year's, which is chapter 13, last year's 12, next year's 14. He's going to the various levels of divinity. And first he explains all the lower, lower, lower. And this, this year's chapter is on the lower, lower, lower. And then he says, and now we'll explain the higher, higher, higher. And as he gets to the highest, 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 he says, and that's the divine treasure. And that divine treasure, he calls it the Otsar. The Otsar, the divine treasure of Hashem, the very highest levels of divinity. And that is given to each and every one of us to be able to overcome our battles and our struggles, again, internally or externally in order to bring Hashem into our lives, into our homes, and together into the entire world. And he says, he goes on, and there's a point that he makes very strongly, he says that the king gives those treasures to the generals, but it's not for the generals. It's for the generals to give out to the foot soldiers, to the soldiers on the front lines. And he says the same thing, Hashem gives these tremendous powers to the tzaddikim, the rebbes, the great tzaddikim, but it's not for the tzaddikim, it's for the foot soldiers. Because really the tzaddikim don't really need it as much. They don't have that type of battle. Tzaddikim are tzaddikim. Different type of situation. They have a different avoda. The ones who are out there on the, on the fronts, battling, battling, you know, whether it's battling um, impulses and temptations and desires or people or situations, that's the foot soldiers. That's the people in the trenches. That's us. And Hashem gives His deepest and highest and most sublime treasures through the tzaddikim to each and every one of us to be able to fulfill our mission of being Sivos Hashem, the army of Hashem, to bring Hashem all the way down in the seventh generation, just like Moshe Rabbeinu, all the way down into this world, which is the mission of our generation. And as difficult as it is, we're empowered with whatever we need in order to accomplish just that. So that's in, in short the idea, the basis, well, some of the very basic ideas of the previous Rebbe's Mimer. And that really next week we'll meet here, it'll just be, it'll be the, I'm not, be. not here. So we'll meet on Zoom then next week, God willing. Um, and we'll go through what the Rebbe discussed in the analysis of chapter um, 13 of the Mimer, which is specifically where he's discussing the various levels of divinity that are going to be given over and empowering each and every one of us in our Avodah. Thank you.